Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. It worked. My flying machine worked. You saw it, sis. You saw our brother Wilbur go up in the sky. Yes, I did. Aren't my two brothers just the smartest folks there ever was? And now, Orville, we have to tell the newspapers all about this. The newspapers? No, the whole idea is that we're the only ones who know how to do this. If we tell the press, everybody will build flying machines and we won't be special anymore. I can see somebody's made up his mind. Maybe you need to have a little talk with Bob the Badger. No, not the puppet, sis. Please, not the puppet. You listen to me, you third-rate tinker toy freak. You do what your sister says. But I don't want to. You gotta get this story out, Bean Brain, because otherwise people are gonna think that sauerkraut-slipping crackpot in Connecticut beat us to the punch. How's that gonna be? Huh? Huh? You're huh? hurting me. I could hurt you even worse. Never forget any two morons can build a kite on steroids and call it a flying machine. It's your sister who has the big brain around here. I, I won't forget. Now, Orville, was that so hard? That was terrible. I hate that badger. But you don't want to get back into the bicycle business, do you? Then let's listen to this nice show that's going to set the record straight. And now he was going to fly with the Wright brothers, but they never called his group. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, you know what that is? Like, you're about to, and it says you're in group two. In fact, one of the things I've noticed, I, because I flew last week, was that when you fly American, there are, like, so many different species of air traveler who are superior to you. Like, I'm always in group two. And then they call everything else first, you know, gold and rubies and diamonds and people who paid $20 to be priority travelers. So at least the Wright brothers, they didn't do that. They didn't put you in a group. Um, we're going to talk today about the history of and the, and the creation uh, of world aviation, about the whole notion of heavier, uh, heavier than, than human flight. And we're going to talk about the Wright brothers, therefore. Uh, however, we will, as we go along here, as we get to the end, we'll also talk about some of the other claimants, some of the other controversies, uh, the Gustav Whitehead thing. Since about 2013, the Gustav Whitehead thing here in Connecticut is so acrimoniously disputed that it's really difficult to have uh, people who are of that camp on the show with people from the other camp. But anyway, we'll try to tell you as much as we can uh, about that without starting World War III. But we've got a different story we want to tell you at the beginning. It's a less well-known story even than some of those controversies. It is the, the story, as the uh, introduction suggests, although hist history does not actually record an animal puppet that was used uh, to bully uh, Orville Wright by his sister. But history does record the existence of a sister and, and the intrinsic role that she played uh, in, in the world of uh, Orville and Wilbur Wright, specifically Orville Wright, as we will come to. And the best person to tell us about this is Harry Haskell. Uh, not only is he the author uh, of uh, two nonfiction books, including early music revival, a history, uh, but also two novels, including Maiden Flight. Maiden Flight is, in fact, the story of a very odd triangle, uh, a triangle between or among, I guess, uh, Catherine Wright, w Orville Wright, and Harry Haskell. Not this Harry Haskell, however, a different Harry Haskell. Uh, so we should, well, first of all, explain that, Harry Haskell. This is, in fact, about a member of your family. That's right. It's my uh, grandfather, who was actually Henry J. Haskell, but everybody called him Harry. And uh, he and Catherine, uh, Catherine Wright, had met as undergraduates at Oberlin College in the 1890s. 
And although they didn't get married until the 1920s, uh, they had remained very close friends, and my grandfather was uh, very close friends with Orville as well. Right. So they had many a bump in the road to travel between uh, any first attraction that they ever felt and the chance to get married. And, and I mean, the reason for this, the primary obstacle, well, there are most multiple obstacles. One of them is that, for a while anyway, Harry Haskell himself is married. That's right. Uh, my grandmother uh, was also at Oberlin, and Catherine knew her slightly. Uh, and she died of cancer in 1923, and it wasn't until after that event that uh, Grandfather and Catherine began to correspond in a more or less intimate manner. Uh, Catherine had always said that she didn't like to correspond with married men because she didn't want to make their wives the least bit uneasy, which suggests to me that she had some sense of how attractive she was to the male of the species. Right. So uh, there's that going on, and then there's the uh, other thing that's going on, which is that um, Orville, particularly after the death of Wilbur, Orville has a very unusual idea about what his relationship with his sister is going to be. Uh, it, it starts, well, I don't know if it starts, but it includes the gift of a ring that would seem to a lot of people like sort of a substitute for a marriage proposal. It seems to me very clear, and I think it probably seemed to Catherine, too. That was uh, a gift that Orville gave her when she graduated from Oberlin in 1898, and she wore it uh, throughout her adult years, uh, I think, uh, partly as a symbol of their closeness and partly to, uh, to warn off other would-be suitors because the three of them, uh, Wilbur and Orville and Catherine, had what Orville regarded as an unspoken pact that all three of them would remain single and available to each other. They were a very tightly knit unit. And, of course, that uh, threesome was disrupted when Wilbur died in 1912. And uh, the relationship between Catherine and uh, Orville became much tighter as a consequence. And it was that tightness that was, again, disrupted by my grandfather's coming on the scene a few years later. So, Harry Haskell, you speak of this pact. Uh, we have a little bit of help from uh, Comedy Central's Drunk History uh, in explaining uh, some of this. Uh, they uh, covered this story. So let's hear from them about the pact. Our story begins in 1874 in Dayton, Ohio. And basically, she and Orville and Wilbur were, like, best friends. They'd do, like, all kinds of old-timey activities that were fun for people then. Like, they would collect bones and sell them to fertilizing plants. Classic thing to do. You know, classic, like, bone collecting. <laughs> and they made a pact together that they were never going to get married. Like, the brothers were like, let's not get married. Why don't we all just, like, be together? We'll just be, like, a unit. And Catherine's like... Maybe I'll meet someone I actually like. Like, you guys are my brothers, and I don't really feel like that about you guys, and I don't think I should feel like that about you guys. And they're like, no, 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 Let's just stick together and be, like, a thing. She's like, fine, I guess. All right, so, but there's kind of early strains that Catherine might be straining, literally suggestions, rather, that Catherine might be straining against that pact a little bit. I mean, in a lot of ways, she seems less like the kind of cloistered hothouse flower that might easily succumb or be bullied or, or suffocated into doing something like that, and more like the kind of woman who, for her time, w would pursue kind of self-actualization. Oh, you're absolutely right. Uh, she was a modern woman in many, many senses, and one of the uh, poignant things and the fascinating things about the story that I tell in Maiden Flight is this tension between Catherine's traditional upbringing and her strong sense of family and Victorian values 
and this sense of what you've called self-actualization, this sense that she has a life to lead and she's entitled to leave it, uh, lead it on her own terms. She was, uh, after she left Oberlin, she became a uh, high school Latin teacher. <clears throat> and that was a career that gave her a certain measure of independence, a certain measure of self-pride. And uh, she, when she finally gave that up to uh, become her brother's social secretary, that's what they actually called her, and they gave her a salary to be that. Uh, when she finally gave that up, she said uh, she did it with great regret because teaching Latin was the, uh, the most uh, valuable thing she felt she had ever done with her life. So let's hear a little bit more of Drunk History on the subject uh, uh, that Harry and I have already talked about, the peculiar, pecu- peculiar present that Orville uh, gave his sister. Catherine graduated from Oberlin College in 1898, so she was very, like, smart and successful. So when she graduates from college, Orville's like, I have a present for you. It's a diamond ring. She's like, okay, are you proposing to me or what is this? No, it's like a brother-sister thing. Like, it's just like a ring. Like, we'll just just be like, it's like our pack. And she's like, okay, it's kind of weird, but I guess I'll wear it until I meet someone. He's like, no, you'll never meet anyone. She's like, I might need someone. He's like, you want me to do one? <laughs> All right. So um, actually, there there are, are kind of two impediments here to this particular kind of self-actualization. One of them, and we, we're going to say more about this as we go along because it's very much the stuff of Harry Haskell's novel Maiden Flight. But, but the other one is a very traditional understanding, particularly for that time, that um, – that uh, Catherine might be expected to look after their father, too. Their father is a looming presence. Uh, He's a bishop in the Church of the Brethren, right? That's right. Yeah, he was very powerful personality. And uh, when Catherine and Orville's mother died in 1889, uh, she said that uh, her father made it very, very clear that she was expected to fill her mother's shoes. So from the age of 14, if you can believe it, Catherine was schooled to be uh, not only uh, a loyal sister to her brothers and, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the woman who kept the, the household together, but in effect her father's surrogate wife. And that was a role she continued to fill until the bishop died in 1917. So uh, th- then the other thing that happens is that Catherine inherits this peculiar role, um, particularly after Wilbur dies, um, you know, people... Uh, like Orville, often say they're married to their work. And I think that's fairly true about Orville, but he's also kind of married to his sister. Actually, he needed a lot of support. It wasn't just his sister, right? There's two other women. He has like this three-woman kind of pit team, you know, none of whom is a wife or anything (laughs) like that, right? That's right. Uh, As I say, he he surrounded himself with a phalanx of very strong uh, and uh, self-assertive women. One was Catherine. One was uh, their longtime housekeeper, a woman named Carrie Grumbach, who had been with them since she was a teenager. And the other was the secretary that he had inherited from his brother Wilbur, a woman named Mabel Beck, whom all the other women in the household disliked intensely, but they were all more or less charged with keeping the world at bay and making Orville's world uh, a very smooth and secluded place. So looking at the way that you depict this in your book, and you have access to letters from Catherine. You know a little bit about how she wrote and thought, right? That's right. Yeah. I should say that uh, briefly, this the, the bulk of the book is actually based on letters that uh, Catherine wrote for my grandfather during the period of their courtship for about, oh, 16, 18 months in the early 1920s. And uh, these are uh, just a gold mine, and uh, they are extraordinarily revealing of Catherine and her 
her feelings, what she was going through at the time, but they are also very revealing of her life as in the right family and her relationship with her brothers, with her father, her outlook on, on life, everything going back to the time when she was at Oberlin together with, uh, with my father, grandfather. So, and you got letters from Orville, too, uh, to look at. And, I mean, you know, reading these uh, these entries, and so the, the novel is sort of these three kind of interlocked diaries, the, the stories of, of Catherine, uh, who's Orville's sister, of Orville, and, and of Harry Haskell, the man who would eventually become, uh, although not for long enough, Catherine's husband. So, um you know, reading these things, you kind of try to factor for history. Okay, so it's like 110 years ago or something. So people maybe thought a little bit differently about their family relationships. And, you know, we live in a different society now. I think even factoring for that, factoring for any other variable uh, that you might want to stabilize. Orville's a pretty weird guy in terms of what his expectations are. <laughs> uh, Orville's psychology is really one of the most fascinating and ultimately impenetrable uh, factors in this story. Catherine puts her feelings right out on the line. She is so self-aware. She's so articulate. She tells you what she's thinking and feeling, the conflicts that she's going through. Orville, although he wrote many, many letters over the course of his life, was, uh, to put it mildly, not somebody given to self-revelation. He was uh, a very, very private person and uh, rarely vouchsafed his feelings to anyone. One senses even to his sister, even to his nearest and dearest. So in recreating a narrative from his point of view, because in my novel I have all three of these characters speak directly to the, to the reader in the form of a kind of a memoir, uh, I've had to, I've had to um, extrapolate a lot of material from Catherine's own letters and from other letters and weave it into uh, material that I've gotten from other sources, memoirs and other kinds of documentation. So although Catherine's le- uh, memoir in the book is really her own words, uh, both Harry and Orville are largely my own creation. So, you know, as we look back uh, through the the lens of the present to the past, um, and this kind of echoes with a conversation I had with John Meacham last week. You know, we try to understand these people in terms of what we know today and also what was known at the time. And, you know, I think it's if Orville were alive today, there would be a lot of people wanting to whip out the DSM-5 and kind of figure out what was wrong with them. You know, was there something that you could build the insurance company for anyway? Um, But I think it's also you have to sort of put that up against this notion that innovators, inventors, risk takers, they tend to be different. I mean, whether it makes any sense to figure out, you know, what particular classification to put on them, you know, are they somewhere on the autism spectrum? Do they have a neurosis? Do they have this? Do they? I don't know how helpful that is. But, but I mean, one does get the feeling that, that I, well, I don't know. I, I guess I'll ask you, do you just think of Orville as this guy who was He's marching to the beat of his own drummer. The things that made him made it possible for him to get up in the air are the same things that make him so locked to the ground in other ways. Well, I think my grandfather diagnosed the situation quite acutely when he said that the very same qualities that made Orville such a powerful force in uh, in his scientific thought, uh, that is the ability to, uh, to ignore everybody else and to just plow ahead and uh, to... Uh, have a strong sense of his own uh, integrity and his own uh, rectitude. Uh, these same qualities were a disaster when it came to his personal relations often. That is, he, was, uh, he tended to uh, uh, write people off very quickly. He, uh, he tended to distrust people a lot, um, when, especially when they failed to live up to his very high standards of ethical conduct. 
And uh, he applied those standards, of course, uh, late in life to his own sister when she had the courage to uh, say, I'm going to go and marry the man I love, and uh, I, hope you'll, I hope you'll understand, but, uh, but I'm going to do it anyway. And uh, we now know that, uh, that Orv reacted very, very badly. He cut her off entirely. He refused to attend the wedding. And uh, so his relentlessness uh, in the end cost him dearly as much as it did his sister. And she, who had waited so long, and in, this, in your book— she knows. She knows how big a problem this is going to be. In Orville's entries, you can see the degree to which he regards almost any kind of intrusion into this peculiar dynamic as a threat, a danger. Women that he might conceivably have married are looked upon as to him as mistakes he could conceivably have made but was way too smart to, uh, and certainly suitors, bows that, um, uh, that Catherine has had leading up to Harry Haskell are also regarded as gigantic mistakes that, thank God, uh, Catherine didn't make until she actually does uh, take that step w- with Harry. But there's, it's clear the whole time, in, in your book anyway, that, that Catherine knows how big a thing this is going to be how big a roll of the dice it's going to be in terms of preserving relationships with Orville. Well, I think that's the the drama of the book, really, is that she knows from a very early stage that this is going to uh, wound uh, Orville very deeply. It's going to quite possibly rupture their relationship, which is as important to her as it is to him. And uh, so from the time that my grandfather first uh, came out to her, as it were, uh, at an Overland commencement and told her he had, he had been in love with her, uh, and she... She was taken aback. She said, I need time to think about this. But what she was really trying to think about was not so much whether she loved Harry and whether she could see being married to him, but whether she could ever leave Orville. And all bets were off from that time. There were people on both sides who were thinking she'll never do it or she, she's got to do it. And she was getting advice from all sides in one sense is her being pulled in two directions very acutely. All right, let's see how our friends uh, at Drunk History handle this part. Catherine is like, all right, this, I'm getting married. I'm 52, I might as well get married at this point. I feel like the pact is over. Meanwhile, Orville's like, no, the pact's not done. I hate you, I'm not gonna speak to you ever again. And she's like, whatever, I have this dude now and I don't really care if you don't talk to me anymore. And they like make out in front of Orville, it's really rude. (laughs) (laughs) It's really rude. So rude. Orville's like, damn, this buzz. All right. So that's how a drunk history season. So, uh, you know, they do get married. They don't have that much time together, right? She lives about another three years. That's right. A little less than, a little more than two years. Um, and But let's circle back now, Harry Haskell, because the other question is, what was her, uh, setting aside all these personal relationships, what was her role in this story, the story uh, of of flight? Um, it's but she's by far the most educated person in her family. I think she's the only. She got what five siblings? She had four siblings, four, four siblings, brothers, four siblings, four brothers. She's the only one who ever went to college. Um, and and it's clear that she has that she's very close anyway to Wilbur and Orville uh, as they're doing this stuff. I mean, what's your sense of? I mean, to, what what debt is owed to Catherine that maybe hasn't been spoken of that much? Well, I think the the debt is well known. I mean, I think it's that she was the the glue that bound the family together, really. Uh, the two older brothers went off at a very early age. Uh, they actually both uh, went to Kansas City early on, uh, which is where Catherine ended up with my grandfather. Uh, and eventually, Lauren, the second brother, uh, came back to Dayton and made his home there and had a family. And Catherine <clears throat> was the uh, loving aunt to his kids. 
but the three of the un, the unmarried um, uh, threesome of Catherine, Wilbur, and Orville from a very early uh, time became, uh, uh, you know, a social kind of unit. And within that unit, uh, Catherine and Orville were their own subunit. And it's it's actually not well known that uh, they were born on the same calendar day, just three years apart. So when we celebrate uh, what is now known as National Aviation Day in August, uh, because it's Orville's birthday, we ought to be celebrating Catherine, too. It's her birthday as well. And uh, they socialized together. They, uh, they, they had the same tastes and interests. They had really developed uh, a, a, a great closeness long before Wilbur died and left them alone, so close that uh, people who came to their big house in Dayton often mistook them for a happily married couple. All right, so we're talking to Harry Haskell. His novel is called Maiden Flight. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back. We're going to explore this story from a few other angles. We're talking about the uh, history of aviation, uh, about the birth of aviation. Uh, we're talking about the Wright brothers. We will, for those of you who are partisans, uh, talk in, in the final segment uh, a little bit about some of the controversies. Uh, well, actually, we're going to talk about some of the controversies in, the controversies in this segment, just not the ones that you want us to talk about. But we'll talk about those in the final segment. But I, I want to just continue for a second before we add uh, our next guest, uh, Thomas Crouch from the Smithsonian. Uh, I want to just uh, stay with you for a second, Harry, uh, who Harry, the author of um, the novel Made in Flight, about the peculiar triangle uh, among Catherine Wright, Orville Wright, and Harry Haskell, but not this Harry Haskell, his grandfather. Um, so, you know, I was asking you, like, how big a role did she play? So there are rumors that Catherine Wright did more, right? There are rumors that she contributed mathematical computations. There's kind of a Betsy Ross narrative where she spends her evenings sewing wing covers and stuff like that. You don't seem to put too much stock in that stuff. No, and Catherine, of course, didn't put much stock in it either. Uh, as far as I can tell, uh, those were uh, those those rumors were largely fabricated by the French press when uh, the three of them went abroad in uh, 1908, uh, 1909, sorry, to uh, to sell the plane, and uh, Catherine just took Europe by storm. She had all the social graces that her two somewhat reclusive and socially awkward uh, brothers lacked, uh, and she also uh, was very European in her orientation. She was actually a classicist by training, and she loved the ancient world. She loved France. She was a, a confirmed Francophile. So this trip to Europe was, as she said, a dream come true for her. And everywhere she went, you can see it in the photographs that are taken at the time, she is vivacious. She is, uh, you know, just making friends for the brothers every place they go. She's also working behind the scenes to uh, to uh, help them translate uh, contracts and deal with some of the uh, difficulties of being strangers in a strange land. Um, I think, as you alluded to in the previous segment, too, there's kind of a sense in which she is some kind of conduit for them to the outside world or to the practicalities that lie outside the workshop and in the marketplace and the marketplace of ideas and the marketplace of credit and the marketplace of, of just the plain old marketplace. So um, let's hear one last clip from Drunk History. Uh, this is how they interpret that piece of the puzzle. Forget this. Like, this is a nightmare. Like, I'm never going to be good at this. 
Not within a thousand years will man ever fly a plane. And Catherine's like, you guys gotta believe in yourselves. No one's ever done this. Why would you think it would work perfectly the first time? You have to try again. And also let me help you because I'm smarter than both of you. We all have known about Orville and Wilbur for as long as we all have lived. But if they didn't have Catherine, they wouldn't have had the belief in themselves and have confidence. And they wouldn't have had the ability to translate things to know how things really work. All right, so we can go back and forth about how precisely true that is. But I think we do know that, for example, Wilbur was an extraordinarily shy person, the kind of person who might not, might not want to give a lecture to an academic body or, or a technical group uh, as they're in the process of developing this. That Catherine kind of understood um, the, the almost social process by which you get credit for something, uh, by the, which your research is understood. Uh, and at least at, at that level, she was invaluable to them. Oh, that's right. Um, she was one of the prime movers in trying to get Orville, after Wilbur's death, to write what they all referred to as the book. And that would be the book that once and for all would let the world know exactly what the Wright brothers had done and uh, would put to rest all the competing claims, uh, which at that time were rampant uh, for, uh, you know, having invented various aspects of the, of the, uh, of the flying machine. And uh, Catherine was, uh, was absolutely adamant about this. She worked on Orville all the time. She said that every time she would mention it, he would get what, he called, uh, what she called his little boy look on, him, on his face. And he said, he would, oh, I'm still taking notes. I'm doing thus and, thus and so. And she said he looked exactly like a, a small boy trying to dodge a disagreeable chore. So that book never got written, in fact. But it was indirectly the cause of her uh, reunion with my grandfather because as we'll talk about a little bit later, around 1914, when some other controversies began to erupt, uh, she very deliberately reached out to the handful of journalists whom she and Orville trusted, among whom my grandfather was one of them, and uh, asked them to help basically mount a publicity campaign to try to get the word out as to what the Wright brothers had actually accomplished. Right. So now it is time uh, to bring in our second guest on the show. That is Thomas Crouch, senior curator uh, of the aeronautics department of the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, the author of several books himself, including The Bishop's Boys. We told you earlier who the bishop was, uh, A Life of Wilbur and Orville Wright, and Wings, A History of Aviation from Kites to the Space Age. Thomas Crouch, welcome to our conversation. Well, thank you very much. Good to be here. So um, Harry Haskell's novel uh, includes references by Orville to conflicts he is having uh, with the Smithsonian. Uh, you are uniquely positioned to know what those conflicts were. There, there were, in fact, conflicts. The Smithsonian wasn't entirely prepared to cooperate with every claim that the Wright brothers wanted to make. They had their own dog in the fight, right? Well, the Smithsonian never doubted that the Wrights were the first to fly, but um, at the same time the Wrights were experimenting, Samuel Langley, who was the third secretary or head of the Smithsonian, was conducting his own flying machine experiments. He built a large machine that failed to fly twice in 1903, once in October, once in December. In fact, the December failure was just nine days before the Wright brothers succeeded at Kitty Hawk. And, uh, of course, Langley failed in front of the New York Times and everybody. Um, one reporter described the airplane, his airplane, 
which he tested over the Potomac as going into the water like a handful of mortar. <laughs> and um, he died just three years later in 1906. But um, in 1914, the Wrights were involved in a patent suit with Glenn Curtis from upstate New York. And um, every time the courts handed down a um, uh, decision uh, in which they agreed with the rights that Glenn Curtis was infringing on their patents, the rights won. Uh, And Curtis, in a sort of desperate effort to um, counter – to go back to the court with new evidence – borrowed the sad remains of Langley's old machine, which had crashed into the Potomac, rebuilt it with a great many changes, and uh, did get it off the water in 1914. Now, the Smithsonian, recognizing that they always said that the Reichs had been the first to fly, but now they began to claim that Curtis's flawed tests. Again, he hadn't proven that the aerodrome could have flown in 1914, but the Smithsonian began to claim that those tests had proved that he'd been capable of flying before the Wrights. Not that he had done it, but that he had been capable of doing it. And that was the origin of the Wright-Smithsonian feud. Right, and, and and there's one name that you haven't mentioned, and that is uh, Charles Walcott, uh, who was a director of the Smithsonian uh, in 1906, uh, and a friend of Langley's, the guy who invented this uh, aerodrome, this thing that looked like a dragonfly and tried to fly like an arrow. Uh, the Wright brothers were more kind of bird-like in their understanding of flight. Um, and, and this guy, Walcott, funded Glenn Curtis, the enemy of the Wright brothers, right? I mean, it, there was, once again, kind of an interest in getting this story told the Langley part of the story, which connected to the Smithsonian, told a certain way. Yeah, as you suggest, Charles Walcott, if Langley had a best friend, it was Charles Walcott. And Walcott spent his whole career, really. Uh, One of the things he was trying to accomplish was to commemorate the work of Samuel Langley. Uh, That's why when the NACA, uh, the American Aeronautical Experiment Government Group, uh, founded their first library, uh, their first laboratory uh, down in Virginia. He named it the Langley Laboratory. He was uh, sort of the mover and shaker when it came to those early aeronautical experiments. So every chance Walcott got, he was looking to boost Langley. So, and we should say one thing, which is that about all of this, um, and then I'm going to throw it back to Harry for a second, but which is there were other challengers to this. Uh, If uh, you were hearing this radio show in Brazil, Brazil, we might be talking about Alberto Santos Dumont, but it was in the nature of scientific innovation that there's uh, convergence uh, by inventors, innovators, scientists, uh, and technology people. They tend to converge on something at the same time. Think of an innovation, and there's a controversy that goes with it. I mean, we, we talked about this yesterday a little bit, that Leibniz and Newton invented calculus almost simultaneously. Um, well, you can talk about the telephone, for example, with Bell and Elisha Gray, and go on down the line. What, um, what set the aeronautical controversy off a little bit is the fact that, in fact, nobody was all that close to the rights. They were probably 
at least five or six years um, ahead of anybody else in the field. And uh, that's why the courts uh, decided ultimately that they were their ideas were worth what was then referred to as a pioneer patent, a special consideration. Um, so I want to come back to this patent in a second. But so Harry Haskell, um, we all know people like this. There are certain people who almost don't get fully energized unless they have a threat, unless they have an enemy. Uh, Orville seems like maybe he might have been that kind of guy, not that he welcomed all these claimants uh, to his title, and not that he welcomed meddling or, or transgressions as he saw them by the Smithsonian. But he certainly was, he knew what he was going to do. If that, I mean, he, he knew how to leap into action against a threat. Well, I do think he was energized. Tom, you'll, you'll comment on this, but I, I do think both he and, and Wilbur uh, were strongly energized by bucking the establishment and by uh, defining themselves in opposition to uh, the conventional thinking. Uh, and I think that shows up in, uh, in Orville's social relations in, in, to a degree, and that Catherine, uh, when she began to buck, uh, you know, buck the social norms as he saw them, uh, also paid the price for that, in a sense. Well, also, I mean, at a certain point, uh, Harry, he pulls the plane out and out of the Smithsonian and sends it over to London, right? Right, yeah. So, Tom, you take up the story there. Well, what you what you have to remember as well is the way in which they grew up. Their father, uh, Bishop Wright, was an extraordinarily litigious man, uh, <laughs> and I'm not going to go into a long explanation of that. But uh, he spent the better part of his life fighting uh, lawsuits that many people regarded as, you know, involving a relatively small principle. And they had grown up um, recognizing that sometimes you just have to go do battle for what's right, you know, to defend your your rights and so on and so forth. So going to court was a fairly natural uh, thing for the – the rights to do. Um, yeah. Could I just also, Tom, ask you about the, the patent here? I, I don't know. There may have been more than one patent, but in, in the reading that I was doing for this, at a certain point, it seemed to me that some of these other people who were tinkering around with this thing and trying to build flying machines, that their efforts tailed off a bit. And some of it had to do with, I think, a $25,000 fee you had to pay if you were going to try to do something like that as a result of, uh, of a patent that the rights held. Do I, do I have this right? Well, yeah, the rights um, charged a fee for people who wanted to use their ideas to make money. Uh, for other experimenters who just wanted to go out and fly the way they did, they didn't charge uh, a patent fee. But if someone like Glenn Curtis was going to, from their point of view, use their ideas to make money, then, yeah, they thought they deserved um, a piece of that. Uh, because their ideas were involved, and the courts agreed. Tom, could I just ask you to what extent you think uh, that money entered in to Wilbur and Orville's, uh, you know, uh, their feelings and their their um, uh, embattled sense? Did they did they really feel that they were owed money, or was this purely a matter of principle? Well, um, it wasn't just money. You have to recognize that. They saw money as a form of recognition of their achievement, of, uh, of what they had done. Uh, they were the ones who had done this. Uh, they had done it, you know, in a much more complete way than uh, anybody else had done it. And they thought that um, 
the world should recognize what, what they had achieved. And as much as anything else, the money was a sign of the, the respect uh, that they thought they were due for what they'd achieved. Um, I also wonder, Tom, whether you'd care to comment. I mean, one of the things that was happening, obviously, here, you know, this whole story is taking place between 1903 and, say, maybe 1910. War is looming on the horizon. Uh, it's going to be a war that has a, an aeronautic component to it. Um, and I'm wondering whether the fact that the Wright brothers were making it kind of expensive to develop any kind of new prototype that used any part of their technology put the U.S., in a position of kind of hitting off the back tees in terms of getting ready to fight a war in the skies? Well, I've argued um, successfully, I hope, that that just wasn't the case. Um, when the United States did finally enter World War I in 1917, Glenn Curtis, their chief rival, was the only American manufacturer producing airplanes at a European level. And uh, again, he was the one the patent suit was aimed at. So I think you have to ask on that basis what kind of impact it did have. The, the problem most people who look at this issue have is that they forget where the real importance lies. And that was in uh, government funding for aeronautical research in Europe, um, where government leaders saw war on the horizon, they were really pouring money to an extraordinary degree into aviation technology. In this country, they were just not spending any money at all. In uh, 1913, just a year before World War I began in Europe, uh, the United States um, was spending less on aeronautics than uh, Brazil, Japan, China, um, much smaller nations. And, and it was because um, we didn't want to be involved in the war and we didn't think we were going to have to be. In fact, by 1917, when it became apparent that we were going to become involved, the government began twisting arms and uh, forced the creation of a patent pool that would buy everybody's patents, the Wright patents, the Curtis patents, Glenn Martin's patents, and put them in a big pool, and all the manufacturers who belonged to the pool, you had to pay to belong to the pool, could then use any patent they wanted, and the the patent suit era ended uh, in that way. But um, no, I think the real answer as to why American aeronautics was retarded behind the, the uh, Europeans was the fact that, um, again, government funding for research for the purchase of aircraft, uh, just government support for aeronautical technology in general. All right, so we're, we're going to take a break right now. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about uh, one more facet of this whole fascinating story. Uh, and so stay tuned. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Jonathan McPants appeared in the intro, and our interns today were Wilbur and Orville Fisher. The part of Bill Curry was played by Chuck Yeager. You can find all of our shows at wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, Adventures in the Multiverse. And now, back to Colin.
Uh, yes, and we have all kinds of fun planned for you tomorrow in the multiverse. So don't miss that show. Uh, and I hope you haven't missed this show. It's been great. We're going to do a, one more uh, bit of the, the story of First Flight. Uh, still with us, Thomas Crouch from the Smithsonian, Harry Haskell, editor of Maiden Flight, a novel in particular about the role, uh, both personal and otherwise, uh, of Catherine Wright, sister uh, of Wilbur and Orville Wright. But we're also adding to the conversation Jerry Roberts, executive director of the New England Air Museum. And and so, Jerry Roberts, uh, we should say, first of all, that there are passionate, uh, ardent supporters of the claim that you're about to hear. They're not on the show today for complicated reasons. But um, but that, you know, every, I don't know, every 20, 30 years ago, it kind of wells up. I think in the 1970s, uh, there was a, uh, quite a fuss being made about the notion that this uh, German immigrant, Gustav Whitehead, uh, might have gotten into the air before anybody else. Uh, and then in, uh, a few years ago, in 2013, there was also kind of a Beatlemania for uh, Gustav Whitehead. So uh, from your position as executive director of the New England Air Museum, what is this story? How does it play out for you? Well, it's interesting. When I um, when I came to uh, to this position two years ago, and I had been at the Intrepid Sea Air Space Museum in New York as vice president for 18 years, which is a significant air and space museum, I'd never even heard of the name Gustav Whitehead until I took this position, and right away people called me and said, what's my position on Whitehead? <laughs> so I had to become educated very quickly. and And here's the truth. Gustav Whitehead is a real man. He came here from Germany. He was a very innovative, clever person. He was passionate about flight. He built a series of flying machines and aviation engines, and he deserves a place in uh, aviation history. Unfortunately, that that place has been overshadowed by this uh, almost a cult uh, feeling that he uh, he somehow flew before the Wright brothers. And our position, along with every other major air museum in this country, England and Germany, is that um, uh, whatever he did, however impressive it might have been, there is no uh, technological or historical definitive proof that he actually achieved controlled, sustained flight, Um, whereas with the Wright brothers, it's very clear. So um, I I think he deserves a a recognition and a place. It's just too bad that his name is is now being lost in this, this passionate battle um, that doesn't seem to care about facts as it does about about turf claims. Well, he does have a snack bar named after him at the state capitol here in Connecticut, so <laughs> it's not like he's uh, completely ignored by history. But uh, but Thomas Crouch, you know, one thing that happens in a situation like this, and there are uh, uh, people who believe that Gustav Whitehead, Whitehead not only achieved first flight, but that there's almost this conspiracy uh, to, to disguise that fact. And one thing that they turn to is, in fact, a document executed by the Smithsonian uh, and Orville Wright uh, that basically says that, that to, to exhibit the right um, plane, uh, the W right plane, uh, the Smithsonian has to agree that, I mean, I'm summarizing, that, that the, uh, the Wright brothers are, in fact, the achievers of first flight. Um, the irony here is that, as I understand it, this, this document exists not because of Gustav Whitehead or anybody else that we might ha- be talking about, but because of this guy that we were talking about in the second segment, Samuel Pierpont Langley, the guy who built the aerodrome, uh, and, and Orville's fear that the Smithsonian was going to try to give him credit. No, it wasn't Orville's fear. Um, it, it, uh, Orville had agreed uh, what happened was that uh, a later secretary of the Smithsonian during World War II finally told the truth. 
uh, and admitted that the 1914 Glenn Curtis test of Langley's aerodrome had not proved that it was capable of flight because it had been so so radically changed from its 1903 configuration. And uh, so Orville passes away, and the um, executors of Orville's estate um, are distributing his material. His papers go to the Library of Congress, and the airplane, which, as you said, had been uh, in exile, really, at the Science Museum in London for over 20 years, um, was going to come back to the Smithsonian. But just to be sure that uh, the Langley issue wouldn't be raised again, what that single paragraph uh, says is that if the Smithsonian ever recognizes somebody else as having flown before the rights, then um, the Wright family, uh, the descendants of the executors, would have a right to ask for the airplane back. They didn't have to, but they would have the right to ask for the airplane back. So, um, Jerry Roberts, you know, we were talking in the previous segment about the fact that these kinds of disputes are not uncommon, uh, although Thomas Crouch says the Wright brothers were really considerably ahead of everybody else. But, I mean, even somebody as sui generis as Einstein, I mean, there are plenty of people who think that Poincaré and Lorenz uh, had uh, done general relativity pretty well uh, before Einstein even got there. So, as somebody who has to curate and, and talk about this, does it make sense to relinquish at least a little bit of the obsession of who got there first uh, and celebrate the, you know, seven or eight innovators who were trying to get planes in the air pretty much within about 10 years of each other. You make a good point. Uh, All all of these people worked very hard and some of them on parallel courses. Uh, I think the problem here is when one group tries to claim definitively uh, that their person um, can dislodge all of accepted history without any real credible facts. And, and, and that's the real problem here. It's not that they're just trying to get credit for Gustav Whitehead's achievements. Um, they're trying to dislodge the Wright brothers' uh, credit, which is, is well-founded in, in, in aviation history. Uh, 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 you know, Whitehead was one of many trying to do it. But with the Wright brothers, you know, we all grew up in school learning about the Wright brothers. And so many things in our lives don't pan out to be exactly like we learned in grade school. But the Wright brothers is one of those stories. It's the real deal. These are two guys, two American you know, innovators, um, you know, no college education, but they solved the problem that other people, including the head of the Smithsonian Institution, could not solve. Uh, and, and they solved it through, through true Yankee ingenuity. And, and other people tried and didn't achieve that. And the Wright brothers' legacy lived on. Gustav Whitehead disappeared. Um, you know, I applaud people that are trying to get some recognition for, for these other folks, and they deserve it. But don't do it by trying to rewrite history without facts. Right. Uh, And there are a lot of these people, I think, as you've discovered and as we've discovered, who will not take no for an answer, too. So, um, Jerry, uh, excuse me, uh, Harry uh, Haskell, let's end kind of where we began, because we just talked about how maybe Jerry Roberts, the executive director of the New England Air Museum, how, you know, one might try somehow or other to incorporate stories that aren't part of the main narrative uh, into giving credit for the innovations in flight. How about your, I guess she's your step-grandmother? That's right. So how about your step-grandmother? I mean, I don't think there are statues and busts and stuff like that. Maybe there are, but I mean, you know, there are are aeronautic museums uh, like Jerry Roberts's all over the country. Uh, Do you wish 
Do you think it's right and fair that she gets a little bigger slice of the pie than she's been getting? I think it's uh, it's appropriate for Catherine to be brought back into the narrative a little bit more. Uh, I think David McCullough has done that in his excellent uh, Wright Brothers biography recently. Uh, if you look on the Internet, there's a slew of material about Catherine out there that, that wasn't there just a few years ago when I first started thinking about this book. So it's certainly not true that she's not getting recognition uh, but I think there's a, a great deal to be done in the way of uh, uh, enveloping her uh, story into that of the Wright brothers, just as we're trying to, in a broader sense, uh, envelop all of women's history into American history in a much more prominent way. And I think that's a very appropriate thing to be doing. Thomas Crouch, i got about 40 seconds left. Does uh, Catherine Wright get any kind of curtain call at the uh, Smithsonian? Oh, she does. In fact, she plays a major role in an exhibition uh, that we're planning right now. And she plays a major role in our Wright Brothers exhibition that's that's already there. Um, Yeah, Catherine uh, was very important in their story. You bet. All right. So we're going to have to stop there. Uh, The book that we've been talking about is Made in Flight, a novel by Harry Haskell. But for that matter, Thomas Crouch, whose voice you just heard, is the author of The Bishop's Boys, A Life of Wilbur and Orville Wright. It's a pretty amazing story. I am indebted to Betsy Kaplan for assembling it and finding uh, three guests who could all get along, uh, which was maybe harder than you might think it was. Uh, And it's, it's a great story. I want you to make sure that you do join us tomorrow. It's our multiverse show. I don't want to say too much about it, but we're trying to make our show as multiverse as we possibly can. It's perfect for a flying honeymoon, they say. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly. Pack up, let's fly away. With all this turbulence, our snacks are getting knocked all over the place. Well, yeah, Orville. It's an in-flight meal. The meals are in-flight. 